Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by a good friend and someone I greatly admire, uh, representing the great state of Indiana as a congressman through the 80s and a senator through the 90s. Dan Coates left Congress at the close of that decade, going on to serve as the United States Ambassador to Germany from 2001 to 2005. In 2010, he won back his old Senate seat, and that's when we met and I was honored to serve as his chief of staff. Dan Coates, welcome to 14th and G. Well, Dean, thank you. And uh, as you mentioned, that was quite an experience that uh, we both had in 2010. Very few people have taken a second run have, having been in the United Senate the first time and maybe saying, boy, I don't want to go back there again. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was very concerned about what was happening to the country, particularly in terms of terrorism threats, but also uh, the debt and deficit that we were rolling up. As you remember, it was Tea Party time in 2010, and I was asked by John Cornyn, who then headed up the Congressional Committee or the Senatorial Committee, that I would, would run again. A lot of people thought I was crazy. Maybe I was, but nevertheless, what I ended up with was a ter terrific staff led by you. I think the best decision I made in that whole year of 2010 was hiring you to be my chief of staff. And we've been friends and colleagues uh, ever since. And so uh, it was a joint effort. I needed support for sure. Good staff, good people working for me. You took the lead on all that. And it's just a joy when I think back about those six years and the kind of things that we engaged in and, and tried to accomplish. So yeah. glad to be on, on the phone here with you. Well, thank you for the kind words. It was it was it was a remarkable time to be in the Senate and and to lead your office. It, it was really an honor. And you know, I do. I remember when when you came back in in 2010, in late 2010 and into 2011, when we were setting up the office, you said your focus, your two priorities were two bombs: the debt bomb and the terrorist bomb. When we parted professional company there in the summer of 2016, you would announce your retirement from the Senate. You and Marsha had 10 grandchildren spread across three states. And after 40 years of public service, that retirement looked set, and it certainly uh, was well-deserved. Of course, the world turned upside down in November, when not only did Donald Trump win the election, but Indiana's Governor Mike Pence was elected vice president. You hit pause on retirement. You went back into the administration to serve as director of national intelligence, the DNI. And I want to know why you felt compelled to take on that role at that point in your life. But can you first explain what the DNI is and, and what it does? Well, the Director of National Intelligence heads up uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which was created by the 9-11 Commission. We found out uh, from that commission that the information, the intelligence that was being brought into our systems uh, all 16 different agencies, eight military and eight civilian, that information was not being shared the way it should, and we didn't have a complete picture by integrating everything that we brought in. There were a lot of fingers pointing about who should do what and so forth and so on, and so the commission told the Congress, uh, you need to create a new office, an office of a director of national intelligence that would oversee these 16 agencies and bring all this together. I think the easiest way of saying the easiest thing to if you think about putting a puzzle together and there's 16 essential pieces to make this puzzle work. 
And so we take a little bit here and a little bit there, and some of the agencies provide, like CIA or the NSA or other major agencies, provide a significant number of pieces to that puzzle. But even some of the smallest agencies that are part of the intelligence community, maybe they have that one particular piece that goes in a spot that makes the puzzle complete. And then we try to picture that puzzle and brief that puzzle to the President of the United States, to his national security team, to the Department of Defense, to many of the agencies engaged in, in keeping America safe. That is on a daily basis, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We are collecting information from around the world, intelligence that's needed to give to our policymakers. And so the DNI director is by statute to be the president's principal advisor to give him that information. And so we would come down to the White House uh, after working all night. Uh, not <laughs> Obviously, I had to get some sleep, but the team was working in a round-the-clock basis to put all that together. And on a daily basis, we get that information out to our policymakers and those who are leading our country through their agencies to keep Americans safe. It's it's more than a full-time job. It's a grinding job. And, and so what, what did compel you to take that role on as you contemplated retirement from the Senate? Well, I was not seeking more work in, in, in federal government, uh, having come back to the Senate the second time, as you uh, mentioned. But then Vice President-elect Mike Pence, a good friend, governor of Indiana, we were friends and knew each other and served he served in the House while I was in the Senate. He became the nominee and for the vice presidency and then won when Donald Trump won. He called me up and said, would you consider coming back? I said, Mike, I'm not looking for another job. We've moved back to Indiana, got nearly 40 years of public service. And I think it's time for me to step down and smell the flowers a little bit. And he was very clever saying, you've served your country. Uh, this is a critical time. We need somebody with your experience. Would you consider taking a position? And I said, well, I won't say no. But uh, he worked on me a little bit. And the next thing I knew, he posed the question to me, Donald Trump uh, wants you to be the director of national intelligence. Yes or no? Well, I've always sort of said yes to a call to duty, starting with my military engagement way back after I graduated from college. It had been very rewarding, not financially, but very rewarding to serve your country and be part of trying to say the right thing, do the right thing, recognition that you know we're, we're the greatest country in the world and we want to keep it that way. And if I have a role to play, you just simply can't say no. So I said yes, and there I was. Trust me, it was a challenge uh, at that particular time, given all the threats that we had coming from around the world, to take that job. But I once again had a wonderful staff, people who supported me. I'm very glad that I said yes. One of your primary daily responsibilities was to prepare what's called the Presidential Daily Brief, the PDB a collection of all the most sensitive intelligence uh, for the president's review. Is that a process of collecting from those 16 agencies uh, and making that presentation to the president on a daily basis? What's that process like? Well, it's, as I said, it's a 24-hour process. Uh, we have a lot of smart young people who come to work at 12 midnight and spend the rest of those dark hours putting together information that's gathered from around the world. We then have in, in place the leadership of integrating all of that and getting it narrowed down to the key essential things for that day 
that our policymakers need to know. I early on wanted to figure out how all that works, so I went to work <laughs> early in the morning and joined them and watched them as they put all this information that came in and assessed it down and, and put it in a format which we could provide to the president and provide to the to the national security team. It's essential, and it has been essential across time from the beginning of time, that if you want to stay on top of things and you want to know what's happening around the world and what it might have, the impact it might have on you or the American people, we need to have this information. Wars are won and lost based on intelligence. Decisions made based on intelligence are the best decisions. We have to make sure that we're doing the best that we can without any politicization, without any kind of massaging, make it look like it's better than it is or worse than it is, but just the clear stuff. I mean, some of us who have been around a long time remember Dragnet and Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Well, our job was just the facts, Mr. President, just the facts, uh, Mr. Secretary. This is what we know, and we think you need to know this before you make a decision one way or another. Dan, last week you published an op-ed in the Washington Post regarding our posture towards China. You cautioned against a simplistic reversion to our Cold War mentality against the Soviet Union. Uh, for one, uh, we're not only economic competitors with China, but we're economic partners. We depend on each other for global supply chains and everything from textiles to computer chips. So that's one of the big differentiators from the, from the Cold War mindset. But what does a nuanced strategic engagement of China look like for the U.S.? Well, the central point I was trying to make there, and I think the headline sort of uh, didn't capture that, but the central point was that, yes, we are in, we're competitors with China in terms of who are going to have the capabilities to engage in world events and help shape world events. We know that China's on the rise. We know that China has dedicated itself to this technological revolution and is using methods that they think in the long term will put them in a position to be dominant and maybe even dominant over the United States. The point I was trying to make that the Cold War with, with Russia was all about a failing state trying to hang on, but they had nuclear weapons. And they were trying to do us, uh, outdo us on the military front. And the Ronald Reagan uh, knew that. He out, we outspent them and they collapsed. They're reliant just on a few things, oil, gas. They don't have the economic weight that uh, we had. And now China has dedicated itself to take advantage of this technological revolution. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't call it a Cold War, but what it is is a cold competition. Uh, the Chinese don't have any interest in going to war with us. Russia wanted to use its military to prove that they could take us out. They failed. We succeeded. And we succeeded because we had the dynamic economy that gave us the resources to do the things that we need to do on the war front, to be prepared, and to make them realize that uh, they simply were not going to win. With China, we now are sort of in a, well, we are in a technological war. All this revolutionary technological change that is taking place around the world, starting with the internet and now going through all the, the ways in which we use technical issues to make cars, to basically do things that humans did before. Uh, it's a major, major change. And the Chinese have put a plan in place. So they're all of government. And once she, their leader, says, this is what we're going to do, they do it. 
we're a democratic process. We have to, when we say let's do it, it has to go through a process of the Congress and we back and forth and so forth and so on. And so getting an all of government response to this is, is hard. Now we want to keep our private sector, but I was, the point I was trying to make is that we are in a competition with China for dominance and economic dominance, for prosperity for our American people, for health around the world, for hopefully safety around the world. And America has been the leader, and I think we need to continue to be that leader. Work with allies, be strong, but we need to know what China is doing, what they're trying to achieve. And that is the contest, and that is the competition that we are engaged in now. Call it Cold War, but don't call it Cold War as, as we define most of us who grew up through the Cold War with Russia. This is a whole new ballgame. And it's not lining up tanks and planes and warships and troops. It is having the ability to use these new technologies to have economic dominance, put us in a position where we, whether it's artificial learning, whether it's robots, whether it's quantum computing, this is a competition that we have to stay even with and do, do better and win if we're going to continue to be the America that is a place of freedom, a place of democracy, and a leader of the world. Well, you make a good point in that, you know, we did not fight the Cold War against the Soviets alone and that we shouldn't try to fight this engagement, conduct this competition alone. Beyond Western Europe, China's engaged in the Belt and Road Initiative across Eurasia and Africa. Beyond Western Europe, who are our natural allies in this strategic engagement against China? Uh, India and Taiwan come to mind, but who should, we, who should the United States be looking to partner with in, in a multilateral approach here? Well, I believe that if we have leverage against China, it is with our allies, both East and West. We look at Europe, uh, we look at NATO, we look at the 29 European nations, we look at the friends that we've had. Just think if we could line up together and be on one page and then look to the Pacific. And when the Trans-Pacific Partnership was being discussed uh, and unfortunately dropped by the administration, think of the leverage we could have on China, not, not from a military standpoint, but from the standpoint of, look, there are rules here in terms of how we trade. There are rules here in terms of the things that we do. We don't try to take from somebody else by breaking the rules. The leverage we would have had against China if we had the TPP and the, and the transatlantic uh, partnership together with all of our allies would leverage against China like you wouldn't believe, and they'd have to stand up to it or we wouldn't do business with them but we wanted them to play by the rules and they weren't playing by the rules, but just the United States just throwing trade tariffs at them obviously has not worked now. 45, 55 nation alliance was basically saying, hey, we played the, by the rules. We're not gonna deal with you if you don't play by the rules. I think we would be in a much better position at this time. Going back to uh, the work you did as DNI uh, and, and the focus on global terrorism, uh, it seems like an issue that's taken a back seat for most of this year. The entire globe's dealing with the pandemic. We've got civil unrest here at home that seems to have taken up a lot of the attention. Is the threat of terrorism still at the top of the list of, of global security concerns? And beyond China, what, what, are, what are the major threats our intelligence, foreign policy, and 
defense leaders need to be engaged on? Well, we had the terrorism threat from ISIS, and, and we dealt with that. And we dealt with that, again, with allies uh, helping us. We could not have uh, taken out uh, ISIS and its caliphate uh, without the support from the Kurds. They played a major role in that. We were allies with them. Just one more example of trying to put the allies together with us to deal with these kinds of of problems. But we should not think that uh, defeating ISIS or at least putting them back on their heels is going to stop uh, people from wanting to take us down, particularly with these new capabilities, technical capabilities, maybe maybe bioterrorism. Now, when you think of COVID-19 is, look what that has done. That capability gets in the hands of terrorists. They can create and then release some kind of bioweapon against the world because they believe that from a potentially ideological or theological basis, that's what they want to do. Being ever vigilant in terms of an understanding, there are bad people who want to do bad things and they want to do it to the leaders of the world in the America. They, they look straight to America and say, we want to take them down. Ever vigilant is necessary. And that includes getting the right kind of intelligence about who's doing what and trying to get it stopped before it happens. So I, we, we can't just simply say, oh, all right, we've taken out ISIS. No worry, whatever. There are bad people around the world designing right now and trying to put together plans to threaten America and America's future and America's people. So I feel very strongly about that. We want to be the best prepared and the best, with the best of knowledge of what's going on around the world. We can't just simply draw back and say, well, we'll just you know, worry about our country here. We don't, have, we don't want to pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Iran, where they're trying to reopen their nuclear weapon capabilities to North Korea with very unstable leadership and also pursuing nuclear weapon capability. These are the threats now, and these are going to be the threats of the future. We have to be ready to take care of it and to deal with it. I think that word vigilance is such an important watchword and a a great reminder that with everything we are dealing with uh, domestically, those threats don't go away. But one of Dean, the, Dean, if I could, Dean, if I could just add add one thing to that. Now, people ask me, you know, what really worries you? What worried you with your DNI? <clears throat> what keeps you up at night? And I think put it in a broad context here. What we think that conflict that might lead to war against each other or might lead to some kind of uh, action, we think, well, okay, uh, you know, we may need to kill the other guy. But we don't want to. I mean, in war, you want to, you go to war for some reasons, and I don't hope we are, never have to do this. You want to protect yourself, and you want to take down the enemy. But when we look at this perverted theology and ideology of some of the elements in the, in the Middle East and the way they have perverted their religion, victory and glory, the ultimate sacrifice is part of their theology thing. You know, I, not, I am willing to die for taking out the infidel, and then I will go to glory. Now, you put nuclear capability or weapon of mass destruction capability or bioterrorism capability in the hands of someone whose belief is, I want to take that, show myself, but take infidels with me. Think of 9-11. Think of the kind of theology or perverted theology that an ideology 
that has caused them. That's a whole different ballgame. And we have to recognize the fact that there are states and there are terrorist groups and there are others who believe this stuff and they want to take it to the free world. They want to take it to the democratic world. They see us as infidels. They see us as someone that needs to be taken out. We're always going to be dealing with that and we have to recognize that. That's a great reminder. We we do get we do get consumed with our domestic politics. Uh, we risk taking our eye off the ball. One of the, one of the domestic issues, or, well, domestic and foreign, but one of your focuses that you spoke out publicly and, and pretty forcefully on as DNI uh, was election interference. Is that still something we need to be concerned with in 2020? Absolutely, and that's one of my big worries uh, as we see what's happening here today in terms of being prepared to address someone who, whether it's domestic or whether it comes from foreign, is trying to manipulate our voting. You know, the essence, the very foundation of democracy is that each individual in America can walk into a polling booth and can vote for who they want to lead this country. And that vote is not going to be taken away. That vote is not going to be manipulated. That vote is going to be honest and fair. If we cannot do that, we are undermining the very tenets of what democracy is. And that is the right of the individual, rights written into the Constitution, rights that give us something that a lot of the world doesn't have the capability of. And so it is essential that we get on top of this situation where people are trying to undermine us through the use of cyber or through the use of any number of ways of altering the the vote. And so we're coming up here with what I call the Super Bowl of all elections, and that's the 2020 election. And it's important that we do everything we need to do to make sure we can assure the American people that their vote counts. No matter who you're voting for, your vote counts and it hasn't been taken away from you through fraud, through cyber, through manipulated plans uh, from one side or another. We have threats internally from that and externally. DNI, intelligence community, looks at what's coming in from across the sea, the foreign influence. We know the Russians have been trying to influence us. We know the Chinese are messing with us. We know probably North Korea, Iran, and and others are using cyber and using ways in terms of undermine the American process and undermine our beliefs in democracy. And so I think it's one of the greatest challenges that we have. And we need to throw all, all we can in making sure that the states, the local communities, and the country has a fair vote, regardless of who wins, a fair vote. And people can say, uh, yes, this de- democracy works, and this is who we are. Uh, and we've had great success across the centuries, and we want to keep that going. Such an important warning to heed here as we're inside three months away from what you describe, I think, rightfully as, as the Super Bowl of elections. Dan Coates, it was uh, an honor to work for you. It's great to be with you here on the podcast, and I'm really appreciative of you joining me today on 14th and G. Dean, it's just like old times. We're back together. Talking about things that, uh, and working together to uh, get a better world and, and keep America great. So uh, thanks for asking me to be on. I treasure our friendship. Very, very appreciate the opportunity to speak out. Thank you, Dan.